This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Thanks for joining us today. Um, This week, we're going to walk through some thoughts on the news. We're going to highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then I'm thrilled to have Trey Yinkst, who's going to join us. He's the foreign correspondent for Fox News. You've seen him out there, usually wearing a helmet and a vest in one of the, you know, more volatile parts of the the world, particularly in the Middle East, where he spends it. A lot of time. We're going to dial him up. I think he's uh, somewhere in the Middle East. We'll find out where. And uh, I think it'll be a, a fascinating uh, conversation. But first, let's talk about a few things that are in the news. Now, uh, again, I try to highlight some things that maybe maybe didn't get on the front page right up front. But uh, this one, uh, this, is, this is a crisis. Um, in Italy, they're having a pasta crisis where the cost of pasta has risen double the rate of inflation. Inflation over in Italy, roughly 7%. Rising cost of pasta, up 15%. Nobody can quite understand why it's doubled and why it's so much, at least from the short things that I read. But my goodness, if this summer you're headed over to Italy, uh, look out because pasta is going to be a little bit more expensive and you can't go to can't go to Italy without getting some pasta. Um, also wanted to highlight, uh, I think it, the, the name of the, the pronunciation of this person is Kami Rita, 53 years old. Now, he just accomplished something that, boy, nobody else in the world has ever, ever accomplished. He is a Sherpa, and he just reached the peak of Mount Everest, which is 29,000 32 feet. Think about how high that is. 29,000 feet high. He did it for the 27th time. That is just amazing. He, in fact, he went up, came down a few days later. He went back up again. 27 times he has taken a crew um, and led the way for people climbing Mount Everest. I mean, for a person to ascend and get there once is just miraculous. To do it 27 times Hats off to Kami Rita, age 53, doing it for the 27th time. Worth noting and saying hats off to you, um, an amazing human being and obviously one of the most fit persons on the planet. I don't know how you do that with to your body with the lack of oxygen, but he's done it and he does it. He did it twice in one week. All right. Let's go to uh, this next thing, which I take much more seriously. Um, And, uh, you know, hats off to Joe Manchin this time. He's the committee chairman of a subcommittee there dealing with natural resources. They, uh, the Biden administration had a nominee named Jeff Marushin. I think, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. To lead the Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. 
normally this is a pretty sleepy position. Normally this is not something that gets garners a lot of attention, but this time it does um, because of the radical positions that the Biden Harris administration has taken on dealing with many things, including gas stoves. What they're trying to do is ban gas stoves from any future production that everything would have to move to electric. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just too much for Joe Manchin. I think it's in the American people. And so the chairman of the committee not going to allow his nomination. This fortunately requires Senate confirmation. Uh, Jeff Marushin is not going to be that person. And I don't even know if it's anything personal about him, his background, not trying to disparage his character. It's the policy that the senators are concerned about, and rightfully so. It is absurd to do this. It is a very efficient, clean way to cook on a gas stove. We have gas stoves. I want to continue to use a gas stove. All right, let's be honest. My wife is the one that uses the gas stove, other than me making popcorn and eggs, maybe some bacon. But uh, I got to tell you, that is a radical position. The country's not ready for it. They've never made the case. And uh, this person, their nomination has been thwarted. And thank goodness. All right, now let's uh, let's go to the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, now we just have to go to members of the so-called squad, the Democrats' uh, members, Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush of Missouri. Uh, these two representatives voted against a resolution. It was just a resolution recognizing National Police Week. They were two no votes. Now, I can tell you, having been there in Congress, they do this every year. It's virtually, I mean, I can't remember anybody ever voting against this. It was to honor, quote, the 556 law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty, including 224 officers killed in 2022 as well as 332 officers killed in previous years whose stories were recovered during 2022. It also ensures police are equipped with the resources and training necessary to keep communities safe. But these two, Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush, Congresswomen out of Michigan and Missouri, couldn't see fit to recognize officers killed in the line of duty and ensuring that police officers have the tools necessary to keep communities safe. Nope, that was too much for them. And I'm sorry, folks, that earns you a place on being just downright stupid. Okay, so now let's let's dial up Trey. Uh, Trey Inkst is, um, he's just got one of the most fascinating jobs, right? One of the more difficult, dangerous jobs you can possibly have. So, I think we're going to be able to get him on the line. He's over in the Middle East, but uh, let's dial him up. Hello? Trey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Hey, Jason. How are you? Thanks for letting me catch you. I appreciate it. I I have no idea where in the world you are right now, but uh, my guess is it's you know not on the comforts of some beach somewhere. Uh, exactly. Right now I'm in Jerusalem. Well, and by the time this podcast airs, who knows where you're you're going to be? Um, you lead a fascinating life because 
you know, I turn on the TV and you're, you're all over the place. I try. It's uh, what I love to do. And so being able to respond to any news event around the world anywhere is really what I'm passionate about. Well, um, evidently, because you're awfully good at it. And, you know, it's not for everybody. There's a lot of people, I think, that want to go into broadcasting, go into communications, be a reporter. But to do so on the world stage in volatile areas where you've got to wear um, a, a vest and a helmet um, and you got people throwing grenades at you, that that's not for everybody. So I, I want to go back to um, where that came from. So take us back, if you can, Trey, to like where... Start with I was born in and kind of walk us through life and how you ended up being in the Middle East. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I was born in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And growing up, my parents took me to different places in the world. I traveled quite a bit with my grandmother as well and just had a fascination with what was happening in other places and with other people. And it wasn't until I went to university at American University in Washington, D.C., that I really decided I could fulfill that dream through journalism. I grew up watching a lot of Indiana Jones and just watching people travel. And I was a fan of Anthony Bourdain and found it fascinating that someone could spend their life going to far corners of the globe and speaking with people about what it's like to be a human in a different place. And so I started studying journalism at American University, and I started a company with my friend called News to Share. And we built News to Share basically as a vehicle to travel other places with an excuse to do journalism, what we wanted to do. And I remember there was one time there was a protest happening in Washington, D.C., and this was really one of the initial ideas that we had to start this company. We asked our school TV station if we could go cover the protest because it was just down the street. And they told us, no, go work on a story on the dining hall at the university. And we were just like, what? How can we miss this news opportunity? So we just went ourselves and we covered the story and we posted it to YouTube and it got a couple views. And then we had this idea to build a company called News to Share. And basically we ended up being partially a media aggregator and partially a group of freelancers that would sell to larger companies like Fox or the BBC or other large broadcasters that needed video from places that either didn't have enough journalists there covering the story or were considered too dangerous to send crews into. So when I was 20 years old, I was traveling the world going to places like the Gaza Strip during a major war that lasted for two months. I was traveling in Ukraine, in sub-Saharan Africa, and basically just diving into the profession that I ultimately ended up doing, being a foreign correspondent. So what I do now is basically what I was doing in college. I just have a lot more resources and an awesome company behind me that is committed to telling these stories. So I'm really living out my dream. It's an interesting experience. Yes. And certainly being on Fox, I mean, you got the biggest audience out there. And But let's go back to Hershey, Pennsylvania, in uh, your parents, what were they doing? Did you have brothers, sisters? What was life like growing up when you were really young? Yeah, growing up, my mom was a substitute teacher. My dad built houses as part of our family business, and we lived sort of in a more rural area. So we did a lot of hiking and spent a lot of time outside. I have a twin sister, and I think 
growing up with a twin, you're uniquely inspired to talk to someone all the time because there's someone next to you in everything that you do growing up. And I think it makes you a better communicator. And it also is a unique experience in the sense that you can look back in life and speak with someone who was the exact same age at the exact same place. And that's unique. People have siblings and they have family members, but I can ask my sister at any given time, do you remember that time we went on a trip to this location and that restaurant that we ate in, they had that special dish and she'll finish my sentence and say, oh yeah, the dish with the fresh fish. And that's just something that she's able to do because we experience life at the same time. So it was interesting growing up with a twin and we spent a lot of time traveling. Like I said, my grandmother was one of the most adventurous people that I knew. She lived into her nineties and when we were young, we used to do these uh, activity books and they were basically called top secret activity books. And they were focused on teaching children about the world and different places. And I had one that I really loved and it was about ancient Egypt and you would do puzzles and you would learn about the culture of Egypt and the Arabic language and the dialect that they spoke there. And it was a way to teach kids about other countries. And I loved this book. And she told me when I was older, she'd take me to Egypt. And she and I went to Egypt together and we saw the pyramids and we floated down the Nile in a riverboat. And I think that she really inspired a lot of my love for travel and my curiosity about people. We went to really remote destinations, uh, the remote island of Easter Island off the coast of Chile, Mm -hmm. places like that, that people aren't normally going to. And I think that when I would come back from those places, I was able to tell stories that were special and able to share with my classmates at the time that the people there are actually a lot like us. They have their own culture and their own language, but they laugh, they smile, they love. And these are all things that, interestingly enough, I feel like I add into my reporting today. It's in my mind, not felt like a time where I didn't have a job and now I have a job. This job feels like a continuation of my life. It feels like an extension of what I was already practicing, which was learning about other people, telling people's stories, and really just being on this grand adventure. Well, it has been a grand adventure. I, you know, look, when I was young, I think one of the great things my parents did, and we had the, the means to do it, uh, was travel. And not just domestically, but internationally. I, I, you know, I was 15, 16 years old, I think I went. Egypt did the same thing, went out, saw the pyramids and... And, uh, you know, all the excavation and, and uh, did that, it went into everywhere from Ethiopia to Kenya to Zambia, you know, doing a safari down into South Africa, went into to Rio. I mean, I was very blessed in that we got to see world at, the world at a young age, and it was so impressionable. And then I remember coming back to the United States and, and just feeling so blessed and, and recognizing that... Yeah, not everybody lives the way we live. Not everybody has the prosperity that we have. And I remember seeing these little kids, you know, I I had all kinds of toys that I loved, but they had to make theirs out of like tin cans and wire. And they were pretty innovative. They were really cool. And they just, they got so excited when we gave them a a piece of gum. I mean, it was, again, it was just eye-opening. It was inspiring and uh, it still affects me today. Absolutely. So now it's one thing to travel and have a passion for. It's one thing to 
to understand it. So as you're growing up, you're going to grade school, you're going to high school, but the ability to communicate that, I mean, you have to have a skill set to be able to communicate, particularly high tension, not a lot of you know, not a lot of uh, workspace and colleagues to lean on and say, you know, how should we word this? Um, you got a cameraman, right? You maybe have a producer with you. Um, but what's that? Where did this come from? Because, again, I think a lot of people maybe want to do what you do, but not very many people make it. And yet not everybody has the communication skills. So where did this like collide and, and come together? And you thought, yeah, I'm pretty good at this and this is what I want to do. I think it was in Ferguson, Missouri. I was an intern at the Washington Post at the time. I was running this news operation, News to Share. Mm -hmm. And when the unrest started there, following the, the death of Michael Brown, I just went. I showed up and started reporting and didn't tell my internship at the time, which ended up causing some problems for my <laughs> school-sponsored internship, uh, right. especially at... Where are you uh, at? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, when I, when I didn't uh, show up. But I think it was, it was that moment and in, in that year. The year was 2014. I'm, I'm pretty young. I'm 29 years old. And yeah. it was 2014 that was a, a series of stories that I think I really started to understand... Personally, I, I felt that this is not only coming to me easy, I feel like I operate really well under pressure. Um, I can be in the middle of chaos and think pretty clearly. I can do a lot of things at once. And these were all skills that were really important in these environments. In, in 2014, I went to Ukraine uh, after the unrest in Maidan and, and the revolution there were presidential elections afterwards. I was in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I covered uh, Rwanda and Uganda and street children there trying to figure out what the story was, just wanting to get into the field. Um, and then Ferguson, I think, really was this moment where I realized I could use social media, actually, to build a brand around what I was doing and also inform and educate people about what was happening. My goal with News to Share was always to get there and stay on the ground as long as possible. And I have a really special respect for freelancers because that's basically what we were doing. We would show up. Sometimes if we couldn't afford it, I would just go alone with my camera in, in my backpack at DSLR. And we would just shoot raw video. Right. And we would shoot interviews. And sometimes we would shoot packages. And at the beginning of News to Share, we just cold called news outlets and just asked if they would buy our footage. And a lot of times they said no. And so we had this idea that we would offer it for free. And the first couple times we would give them free video, but it allowed us to get our foot in the door and build those relationships. And I found that after that, it really started to make sense to me. Things started to click about how the industry worked and also the role that I could play in the industry, that I could go to these locations that other people felt were dangerous because a lot of times they were, and I could stay out in the field for long periods of time. But most importantly, I knew what the story was. I could identify the storyline and I could find the people who were involved because what we do, it's about people. I mean, almost 
what everyone does. It has to do with people. And if you can remember that as a focus, I always tell students when I talk to them now, remember these stories are about humans and humans have emotions. And, and if you can identify why people are doing what they're doing, why demonstrators are, are in the streets, why police officers feel they have to show up in riot gear, people make decisions for a reason. And how can we tell that story in a way that's objective, that it's fair, and that it's accurate? And so I felt that I really started to do that in Ferguson, and I sort of just built from there using social media and just hustle. Now, Trey, you, you, your business model looked a little flawed by giving away your product early on. How did, I mean, were you living on the streets? How, how did you afford to possibly go through that? I mean, that's, that's what it takes to build a business, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but... Tell us about those kind of early days, because that had to be some rough um, cutting the corners, maybe not eating every meal that you wanted to eat, right? Yeah, I just wanted to make it work whatever way possible. And so there were times where we were losing money. We'd buy a plane ticket somewhere and I'd go by myself and we didn't sell any video. And the trip never felt like a failure to me, but there were times where I thought, wow, the business part of this is not as exciting <laughs> or fulfilling as the news part. And quite honestly, I think that's why I do what I do now. I mean, I, I've i always found the business part interesting, um, but it didn't come naturally to me. The The thing that came naturally, naturally to me was the storytelling. Okay, so you're going along, you go to Ferguson, um, you just inject yourself in um, volatile situations. What were some of the breaks that you got along the way and, and how did you ultimately end up at, you know, one of the biggest in Fox News? Looking back, it's interesting because it's like anything in life. At the time, I was always really worried that it wasn't going to happen. I remember talking to my grandmother about it before she passed and just saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it as a foreign correspondent. Like I, I know this is what I want, but it's tough. I mean, the industry is really competitive, but the foreign correspondent beat is even more competitive. There are just not that many positions, yeah. especially I mean, in it's today's like, media Hey, you want to be a quarterback in the NFL? There's only a few of those jobs. You know? <laughs> exactly. Everybody might want to do it, but not everybody's getting on the field. Exactly. Exactly. So she told me, she said, you'll get there. Just keep working. And that's what I did. I mean, I... I would sit in front of my computer, I would read the news, and then I would sit in front of my computer with the web camera on, and I would just start reporting. And I, I have these clips still where I'm saying, today, the Assad regime has launched a new offensive against rebel forces in Syria. And then I'd go to the next one, and I'd say, the Israelis say they're willing to open a border crossing with Gaza, but worry that tension along the border could create a difficult situation. I, I would just practice these stories over and over again. And then I'd go outside and I'd stand in front of my DSLR and I would try to report and then I'd mess up and I'd do it again. And I did this often. And I think that putting in the reps early on helped a lot. Um, when I graduated, I got a job at a small outlet in DC, covered the White House for a little bit and really hustled there, just tried to make contacts across the board and just remembered sort of what my parents and what my grandmother taught me about people and the importance of knowing who you're dealing with and also understanding that, as you know well, probably better than most people that I talk to, it's it's about relationships. And 
and just remembering that going into the industry. And so I, I got an agent, a guy that I initially linked up with in college. He kind of scouted me and said, gave me his business card. We had dinner in Georgetown. He said, one day when you need an agent to go to the, the big guys, give me a call. So I called him one day and we held a bunch of meetings with a bunch of different media outlets. And I loved what Fox was doing. And here I am almost five years later. Well, good for that agent too. He's recognizing some talent early on in the in the process. Absolutely. Um, and so you get the break, right? You're going to go to Fox, and and what does Fox tell you? Where, 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 do they just send you out overseas and say, "Hey, how about it? How does that work?" Yeah. So initially, I didn't know exactly where I'd end up in the conversations and. I had some discussions. Would I stay in D.C. where I was living at the time? And then there was this moment where I, I spoke with one of the executives at Fox and they said, well, what's your dream job? What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a foreign correspondent. But in my mind, I had told myself, well, I need to do X, Y, and Z before I could ever get that opportunity. Right. And they said something to the effect of, well, would you move to Jerusalem? And I said, right. absolutely. And a few months later, I moved to Jerusalem. <laughs> Of course. Sure. You moved to Jerusalem. So <laughs> I left it all behind too. You know, I had a life in DC. I had a girlfriend at the time, had uh, an apartment, group of friends that I still stay in touch with today. They're all people in the media industry, but, uh, I just left it all. And I, and I moved to Israel and I, I remember landing and getting picked up at the airport and I came straight to the bureau and everyone was waiting in the bureau to greet me and, and say hello. And I just remember in the car thinking like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I just left my entire life behind, moved abroad. And those early months of living abroad, I think were the most formative months of my life. How so? I moved to a foreign country where I didn't speak the language. I didn't know a single person. And I took a job that I knew I was capable of doing, but still the pressure was there. It's like, it's like being that quarterback. You get drafted, you're in the NFL, the first game, you come out of the tunnel and everyone's watching. And that's what it felt like to me. I, I knew that I had been blessed with a really, really unique and special opportunity. And I had prepared for this. I knew this was what I wanted and it was in front of me. And so I wasn't going to let that moment pass me by. I, I wasn't going to take it for granted. And I worked really hard. I mean, I, the past five years I have been grinding really like on all fronts, on all stories. But in those initial months, I just, I didn't know anyone. I, I would walk around Jerusalem and just look at the sites. I'd put my headphones in and I'd walk for hours. And I learned about who I wanted to be, who I wanted to become. And I had this vision of in my mind of being the best foreign correspondent in the world. And it sounds a little egotistical, but it was the thing that I would think about when I would walk. I'd be like, I can do this. I just need to execute when the opportunities present themselves. And so that's what I've done from Afghanistan to Ukraine to Lebanon to Gaza, when those opportunities arise and those stories are unfolding, 
it's personal for me. I want to be the voice that the world is listening to. And I'm so thankful to have the platform of Fox. I mean, the leadership of this company, they're all former producers. They're people who have been there. They've seen the things that I see. And so when I call them and I say, this is the story, this is where we need to be. It's never a fight. It's like, yeah, let's make this happen. And that's unique. It's especially unique given the current environment that the industry is facing. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Trey Yankst after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, to have the resources to be able to actually go out and do it and the personnel. And, in you know, I've, I've been to some of these bureaus, haven't been to the Jerusalem one, but, you know, it's not the most glamorous um I don't know what people are envisioning, but um, it's it's a workspace <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, but it's always a jumping off point, right? I mean, you're going to be out there in the field doing doing uh, you know incredibly hard, difficult things at all hours of the night because then they got time zone changes, and next thing you know, they need you on Fox and Friends, and then they they also need you up on you know Hannity at night, you know. And so, um, you know, the the timing and the lack of sleep and the the number of hits that you have to do from, say, Ukraine is, has, I mean, it's just draining. It is something that you have to have a lot of energy and passion for. Tell me about, you know, you you were friends, you were colleagues, you were had personal relationships, and and so when the incident with Benjamin Hall and and you know the death of two of our Fox colleagues, tell me how that went down for you. I mean, this is very personable, personal for you because you spent so much time with these people. Yeah, it was incredibly challenging. It still is. Um, you know, Benjamin Hall is someone that I look up to. I think he's been able to lead the industry in his coverage of foreign events. And he's also been able to maintain this beautiful family life. And it's something that I think is incredible. And also it's rare in this part of the industry. Um, Pierre and Sasha were in Ukraine to cover arguably one of the most important stories of our generation and to do it in a way that makes people care. And I think that that is what I took away from my time reporting with Pierre and Sasha is that they were there for the right reasons, to make people care about the story, to inform them, to educate them, and to hold the Russians accountable for what they were doing to innocent Ukrainians. And so, yeah, the incident still, uh, I think, sticks with me. It sticks with a lot of people. Um, but it's such a great feeling to be able to see Benji. I saw him at the correspondence dinner, and uh, he's just an incredible reporter and an incredible person. And so it's, it's tough. And, uh, I think it, some people, their reputation precedes them. And, you know, Pierre was someone 
like that everyone knew Pierre, uh, everyone knew the quality of his work. And you knew when you were reporting with Pierre that you were safe. You knew that you were in good hands. You knew that you were taken care of um, because he just was the guy that everyone turned to when they didn't know what to do next. We were in Afghanistan together after the Taliban took over. And those moments were some of the most unpredictable, I would describe in, in what I've covered because no one knew what was going to happen. No one knew who was in charge, but Pierre felt right at home. He was comfortable. He had been to Afghanistan so many times that our team of people that we worked with on the ground, our local producers, they knew Pierre, Pierre had stayed in touch with them. He helped to get their family members out of the country once the Taliban took over. And that's just the type of person that he was. And so as I look forward, I always try to think to myself, you know, what would Pierre do in this situation? And most of the time that's to just work hard, inform people about what's happening and to just overall be a good person. Yeah. I, w I wish I had the, uh, had had the opportunity to meet him, but hearing his story and seeing it from afar and the great work that he and Sasha did, it's just amazing and, and admirable and impacted uh, countless lives. And, and then with Benjamin to see him, um, uh, again, part of the Fox family, but not somebody I really knew. But a few weeks ago, I was I was um, I was back at, in New York in in the Fox Building, and and uh, came down the elevator, and and there he was, just standing with a cup of coffee, talking to Bill Hemmer, uh, just down <laughs> by the elevator banks. And I just thought, wow, that he's. It was just like it was quite a moment just to see him standing um with a cup of coffee i just it, it was it was just a moment it was a real real moment and i guess that's part of the skill set and the talent that you have to have trey is to be poised in a war-torn situation where there's so much human suffering and you know people that are scared and that they don't know what's going to happen and they're living in the middle of uncertainty how do you how do you deal deal with that i mean it's it's not just a one off thing it's something you see on a regular basis it's a good question um i've been pretty open about talking about the effects of on mental health and how this job can change you as a person and how it can really take a toll on your personal and professional life i'm trying to be a leading voice in the industry i think a lot of people look up to me. They sometimes people tell me I'm Superman or I'm invincible or I saw you reporting under rocket fire last week or under artillery fire or on the front or interviewing the president of Ukraine and they see all these moments and right. I think while they're important and they're part of the story, I, I want to be remembered most for the work that we're doing to illuminate the voices of the civilians that we speak with. Um, because we have the luxury of leaving. We can go to the airport or go to the border crossing and right. go home. Right. For the Ukrainians, for example, they, they can't leave. That is their home. And so it, it is a very special and, and I think privileged to tell these stories, but it does take a toll on you. And so I've gotten better at 
identifying my emotions at taking time off about taking breaks. Um, but it's hard. It's hard because we're so often there on the worst day of someone's life. We are there for literal hell on earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was speaking with someone recently about this on the moments that stand out in my mind from across our coverage. But just when you look at Ukraine, because it's still in recent memory for me, you know, we saw mass graves filled with civilians. Mm. There were times where we were getting into villages and towns on the Eastern front that had been liberated the night before. And if you can imagine the carnage left behind the largest ground war in Europe since World War II. We'd get into towns and you'd see civilians looking through their homes to see if they could find loved ones or maybe gather things so that they could flee and go further west. And next to them in the yard where they were growing vegetables weeks prior, stacked up with the bodies of soldiers. Um, experiencing real fear. I mean, I think there's also a misconception about foreign correspondents that we're not afraid of anything. I guess some aren't, but that's really dangerous. That's really dangerous not to be afraid of anything. Um, because a lot of what we see is an experience is scary. I mean, reporting under gunfire, watching, I, I've seen people get shot in front of me. Um, I've seen critically injured people, uh, dead kids. I mean, things that you just you don't want to see, but it's part of our job so that we can see these things and tell people about just how bad it is. And it's not just like that in Ukraine. I've seen these things in, in other parts of the world as well. Um, but it comes with a massive responsibility. And so I feel that what we're doing is important. I think that personally, I'm incredibly lucky to be doing it at Fox because there is such a commitment to telling these stories abroad. And the thing that I'm working on every day, even as we speak um, this week, you know, tomorrow morning, I'll go to yoga um, in the afternoon, maybe do some meditation is really taking care of my mind. Because if you don't take care of your mind, you can't do this job for a long time. It's not sustainable. You just see too much and experience too much despair to properly continue this reporting. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Trey Yankst after this. Your loved ones at home, the ones you're closest to, your sister and other family and friends or whatever, what, what, uh, how do you put them at ease? What do, you, what do you tell them? This is a really selfish job in some ways, but I think that the people that care about me most and love me most know why I'm doing it and they see the value in it. But it can be selfish. Um, a few days ago, um, there was a, a round of conflict between Islamic Jihad and Israel. More than a thousand rockets were fired into Israel. And my dad is kind of like my second agent. I talk to him every day and he gives me feedback on live shots and <laughs> tells me to fix my hair and <laughs> tells me to give a little bit more context in my on-camera tag. Come on, fix my hair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's awesome. He, he like, he watches every single one of my reports and Good, uh, it's great. he gives me an objective review. And sometimes it's like, you really nailed that point home. You know, you really provided good context there. And other times he'll say, 
I don't know who that group is. You need to give the viewer some more background on who these guys are, you know, and like, he's right, you know, and it's really, it's, it's great feedback. But I was talking to him in the South and we were pretty close to the Gaza border and a rocket barrage came over and I could see the rockets coming off the strip. And I just, I debated what I was going to do. And I, I just said, uh, hold on one second. I'll, I'm going to have to call you back. And I hung up the phone and then we were under fire for a little bit. There were some interceptions overhead, air raid sirens sounding. Um, and I called him back and I said, Hey, sorry, we had some incoming fire. I made the decision not to keep him on the phone because of how worried I know that he gets about me in the field because right. it's a dangerous job. I mean, we've seen firsthand, this is incredibly, incredibly difficult work sometimes. And, uh, that's why sometimes it feels selfish because I know that there are nights where like my dad and my sister, they're not sleeping because they're worried about me because I'm on the front line somewhere. But at the end of the day, they know that this is my identity. I mean, this is everything for me. This is, this is not a job for me. And I often will talk to students about my work and they'll tell me, I want to be a foreign correspondent. Like, how do I do it? And I sometimes feel like I don't have the best advice for them because I don't see this as a job that I show up to work. Like when I go home, I'm still calling sources. I'm texting people inside Gaza today to ask them what's the latest. There's a March tomorrow. How are you guys going to respond? You know, I, I want to have my thumb on the pulse all the time. And that's not always the most healthy thing, but it's just the way that I am. And I think that my family and my close friends understand that and they really support me in my efforts. Well, that's obviously been, you know, key to success. And I, I think anybody who rises to the top of their profession, and I don't care what it is. I mean, you pick what it is. It, 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 it's the same thing. They're, it's not a job where they clock in and clock out. They're passionate about it. They live it. They breathe it. It's, it's uh, who they are, and they have fun doing it. But, you know, there's difficult parts of it. Yours, a little bit more obvious how difficult and how dangerous um, it all is but how valuable it is to the world to understand and get that glimpse, even though you're, you know, Hey, it's a two minute hit. You got two minutes to try to explain something that you much rather take two <laughs> hours to give all the background on. But that's a talent that's, um, that you have that a lot of people don't. And, and it, I, it's great to hear those stories about all the practice and all the, you know, when nobody's around and standing in front of that, DSLR camera and just practicing as if you were there. I mean, that made all the difference. And for you to be not even 30 yet and doing this, it, it really is quite remarkable. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. You know, I, I think that, like you said, the people that I meet in any walk of life that are really good at what they do, normally it's because they really enjoy it. It doesn't feel yeah. like work to them. Yeah. And also because they're doing it for the right reason. Well, and you know, I, I, some people ask me, "Oh, how do you do this? How do you do? How do you run for Congress? How do you get in? You know, this." I said, you know, at the end of the day, it's still about policy. It's still about issues. You have to know your stuff. So whether it's Fox, or you know, pick your job, or or you know, Congress, or you know, any other political thing, anything in life, you know your stuff and. You know, that's, you have to live it, breathe it, and just go in and immerse yourself. There's not somebody who's going to hand you the book and the playbook and say, yep, this just do this and you'll be just fine. Um, and, and you've obviously done that. 
So Trey, I've got I got to ask you some other questions as we kind of wrap up here. We sure. do rapid questions, and I, you know, you may have had a lot of rockets going off above your head. You're you're not ready for these questions. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. We're gonna do these and uh, pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? Yes. Oh, Trey, we were in such a roll. <laughs> Jud- judges do not like this answer, but we're gonna cut you a lot of slack given what you do. All right. Uh, first concert you ever attended. Uh, Billy Joel and Elton John. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That would be really cool. What was your high school mascot? Uh, the Rams. The Rams? Yep. Yeah. Central Dolphin okay. Rams. That's very good. Um, favorite vegetable? My favorite vegetable would probably be broccoli. Yeah. That's that's legit. You'd be surprised, Dre. Maybe half the people I asked that question to can't name a vegetable. So you passed the <laughs> test by just naming a green vegetable. So that's pretty good. Yeah, the pressure's on. Yeah. <laughs> what was the first job you had? Not mom and dad saying, hey, you know, take out the garbage there, Trey. What was the first job where you got a paycheck from somebody else? I was the assistant for a DJ and I would carry the speakers and set them up at wow. weddings and <laughs> normally at the end of the night for like 20 minutes he would let me actually do some DJing do and some, that was uh, and that's and that was uh one of my first jobs yeah yeah it sounded like a very lucrative gig there Trey yeah. I'm sure your parents were <laughs> mighty proud that uh, oh yeah yeah I got a DJ job that's great um <laughs> what's your what's your superpower and what I mean by that is like Everybody, I think, can do something a little bit better. They know they're pretty good at it. What would be your superpower? My superpower? Um, yeah. I would say this is just something that nobody knows about me. But I'm really good at snowboarding. I used to snowboard really? all the time growing up, and I've never, ever talked about it until this moment right now. But I love snowboarding, and I'm really good. Now, I used where to be able in to the do world did you go snowboarding? Because if you're... You're growing up on the East Coast. Um, yep. I happen to be from Utah, so we kind of giggle when we we hear people talking about how the great the snowboarding is out on the East Coast. Yep. So where were you snowboarding? Sometimes we go up to J Peak in Vermont. Wow! Um, and All right, been out to that's Boulder. Pretty good. Yeah. And uh, spent some time in Colorado. And and during the summers, this is a fun fact. I would go to Mount Hood, and I would go to a snowboard camp called High Cascade Snowboard Camp. And really? I'd spend weeks there in the summertime because they'd still have snow. Yeah. And so all the big snowboarders, Sean White, Scotty Lego, Olympians, they'd come out and they would teach like master classes for snowboarding. And I learned a lot being there. And I would say that's one of the top five things that I don't like about living in the Middle East is that it's not really accessible to snowboard. Yeah. That, okay. That's fascinating. <laughs> I had no idea. And you know what? Someday you will graduate to the to the best, and you will able be able to actually snowboard in Utah. Yep. And, and you will. <laughs> and I've never been. Pinnacle, when you you will reach the pinnacle when you're you're boarding in Utah. So let's let's work towards that moment. Yes. Um, <laughs> just a couple more qu- quick questions. So, if you could have one person over, hey family dad sister whoever hey we're gonna have a special night tonight i got somebody he's gonna come over and join us dead or alive doesn't matter who pick pick anybody in history who would you want them to come who would you want to have come over and share a meal with and, and and enjoy an evening together this is such an interesting question and it's one of those questions that 
you should have a great go-to answer for. And so you're really going to get one off the top of my head. I would say George Orwell. Uh, And, and, um, which was actually not his real name, but the, the authors of dystopian literature always fascinated me. And I would be interested to hear about George Orwell's take on society today and what he thinks about it. And, and, uh, I don't know. That that would be my thought. And his real name is not George Orwell. It's actually Eric Blair, but that's his pen it's name. It's not as inspiring as George. I know. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> he knew. He knew he needed to change it. That's good. That's interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> last two questions here. If you weren't doing television, what would you be doing? If this didn't come to fruition, like what would you be doing? That's a tough question. Um, I think that I would. Be working in a snowboard shop somewhere. Yeah, be working in a snowboard <laughs> shop. I often I, I have a friend, and he, uh, he spends the winters in Austria, and he snowboards all winter. And I've always thought that was so cool. Um, I think I would be building a company. I I wasn't so good at it in college, actually, the business part. But I've always looked up to my father, who ran a company, and I think it would be interesting to run a company that you could manage from afar, which, you know, I, I'm very interested in coffee. So actually I've got an answer for you, Jason, it would uh-huh. be having a coffee company um, and a coffee company that I could build a, a coffee shop, but also be able to travel and, and operate from afar, get things in order and then be able to travel. I really like coffee. Um, there's a new coffee shop by my apartment in Tel Aviv that I went to today and it's just one of those things where you can take a moment out of your day, have a double espresso, and just think. Spend some time thinking. Yeah, just relax. And, and yeah, uh, I have no doubt that you'd be highly successful about that. At that, because you'd go figure it out. You know, you may not know it, but you figure it out. And you wouldn't be a successful correspondent if you didn't have the innate ability to just approach people and ask questions and and go figure it out. I mean, that's ultimately what you're paid to do, right? Go figure out what's going on there and tell us what you found. (laughs) Exactly. Last question. Um, Best advice you ever got? Things have a way of working out. And my father gave me that advice. And generally, he's been right. I think that it's really easy to get caught up in moments and Things happen in life. Things are are difficult. Life is not easy. And that could be said to a varying degree for a variety of people. But life can be challenging, but things do have a way of working out. And I'd say a second piece of advice while we're talking about it is the harder I work, the luckier I get. And uh, that's been said before, but my grandmother told me about that advice and I took it to heart and I think about it often that there is some luck and timing to most of what we do and people who are living out their dreams accomplish, but you've got to work hard and you got to put the time in behind the scenes. So whenever I talk to students or any of my mentees, I just tell them, put the work in, work hard. Nothing replaces hard work. Yeah. Work hard, work smart and um, good things will happen. And You're supposed to have obstacles and challenges and your role in life is to overcome them and figure it out and get to the next step. So Trey, uh, 
very proud of you. I'm honored that you'd taken to spend the time talking with us um, and, and kind of sharing your insight and your story. And, you know, when you come on the air, it's just, oh, something's really happening because they're not going to you just for to fill time. If there's something volatile happening in the world and, they're, and you're coming up, you know that um, there's news happening and you're right in the thick of it. So I really do appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And I felt it was an informative conversation. You can always learn something from people. And I uh, respect the work that you've done and continue to do. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And be safe out there and look forward to, to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. I can't thank Trey enough for joining us. Um, he's got a lot to uh, at his footsteps there in the Middle East and dealing with the volatility that uh, that is constantly going on there. But, um, you know, like I said to him there, there at the end, I, I really am proud of him because I think it takes a lot of guts and fortitude and expertise and passion to do what he does. And he seems to combine all of that. So I really do appreciate him uh, joining us today. Before we go, I want to I wanna offer a little bit of a prediction. Um, a prediction here that... Uh, um, we're going to have a contentious, uh, presidential race. Anybody going to vote against that? <laughs> there's no doubt that there's going to be contention and wild turns with the presidential race. But here's my, my prediction at the end of the end of the day, we'll still figure it out. We'll still get through it. You know, uh, the analogy I like to use is that there's a tree and you got to shake that tree really hard because the nuts fall out of the tree. That's how they get it. Have you ever seen one of those walnut machines? If you ever want to see something funny, look at how they how they uh, shake the walnut trees in order to get all the nuts, and they fall into this big net. It's a, it's a cool little video. Watch it on you know one of the streaming services, and you, but you know what? That's what we do in this country. I think the times in the country where we have run into problems are when we maybe didn't vet people as thoroughly as we as we should have. Now. Some of it is so invasive that it's up and over the top. Some of it's a little too salacious, unverified. You know, be careful when you see things like unnamed sources. There are a lot of others who want contention in these races. They get these, they create these bots. They do all kinds of weird things. But you know what? Um, our system is really a great one. And um, now, personally, I don't like the way we vote. That's just me personally. I wish everybody voted the same day with the same information, the same, you know, no voting before debates, that kind of thing. Make it two or three days if you have to, um, you know, make it a, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So the people, can, you know, you know, if they have problems with work, then they have no excuses to get out there. Vote in person, vote with a vote with an ID. But that's not the way it is. So we have to play by the rules that are there. And if you want to change those rules and work with those rules, then you have to work on your state and your county commission and your your uh, counties because they're really the ones that administer these elections. Don't let it become federal. Anyway, my part of making a prediction that, hey, it's going to be contentious. It is going to be volatile. And it's supposed to be invasive to these candidates who want to earn your trust. But you know, there's certain lines we shouldn't cross. If they're crossed, I think you'll know what they are. But let's keep it about issues. Let's talk about policy and, uh, you know, people's uh, background. Fair game. I understand that to a degree. 
there's certain things that maybe are over the line. Anyway, my prediction, not a bold one, but it's going to be contentious, and it's supposed to be, and it's going to be here before we know it because the first debate for the Republicans for the presidential race happens in August. Amazing how quickly that comes upon us. All right, I want to thank everybody. hope you can... Uh, uh, rate this podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you do that. Subscribe to it. I want to remind people also that you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. You can also go over to the foxnewspodcast.com. Here are some other podcasts uh, that are out there on the Fox Network. Uh, some really good ones out there. But again, rate it review it um, and subscribe to it and we'll be back with more next week with an exciting guest I'm Jason Chaffetz this has been Jason in the House Hi everybody it's Brian Kilmeade I want you to join me weekdays at 9am East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and of course what you think Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com